This is News Talk 980 CKNW. Global News at 8. Good after, good evening. I'm John Hall. Agassiz RCMP say the search for an Australian woman that went missing near Harrison Hot Springs is still on. This comes after the family posted to social media saying it had been called off and thanking police and search and rescue crews. Sophie Dowsley and her boyfriend Gregory Tiffin disappeared more than two weeks ago. Their empty car was found at Statlu Lake with personal effects later discovered near a treacherous waterfall. Mounties recovered Tiffin's body on Wednesday. In a statement, the RCMP say crews are continuing to search and it's concerned for Dowsley's well-being. It adds that it's in close contact with her family. BC Wildfires State of Emergency The BC Wildfire Service says any human-caused fire is one too many. It says while there are more than 150 fires burning throughout the province, one that started yesterday was human-caused. Spokesperson Navi Sani says the exact cause is being investigated. She adds people are being warned it's easy to accidentally start a fire with the current weather. And it's really just people need to, you know, take responsibility for what they're doing. Of course, we can't enforce rules on every activity that could result in a wildfire. Campfires is just one of the things that we can control. Meanwhile, 100 Mile House residents are headed home after being evacuated nearly two weeks ago. However, they are still under evacuation alert. As Global BC's Nitu Garcho reports, officials have confirmed no homes were damaged and spirits in the community are high. They're overwhelmed with gratitude. They have been out of their homes for two weeks as of today. And they were staying in Kamloops, some in Prince George, some going to other communities. And the, the amount of support they're getting from friends and family, from neighbors, but even from complete strangers who are going out of their way to try and make this difficult time easier for them. The sense I'm getting from everyone, whether they lost their home or whether they're coming home to a home or a business, is that they're just so grateful for all the support they've gotten. 33 homes have been lost in the Caribou. BC Emergency Management says more than 30,000 people are still affected by evacuation orders. Closer to home, why now? That's the question Mayor Gregor Robertson is answering when asked about this morning's announcement of a pilot project to create more affordable rental units. CKNW's Michelle Morton reports. But he says the city has been trying to tackle the housing affordability crisis. We had the first rental incentive program years ago, uh, six, seven years ago, to build rental housing and to get the supply up. And over time, we realized, actually, we can't just create more supply. We have to tie some of that supply to affordability. Speaking to Global News, Robertson explains that nobody expected the prices to climb the way they have. He adds all hands are needed on deck with contributions from both the provincial and federal governments. Michelle Morton, CKNW Vancouver. The Canby Corridor Phase 3 plan would require new buildings to have a number of designated rental units for people making up to $80,000 a year. And some Surrey residents say a community hub is in jeopardy. Stephen Pettigrew says Hawthorne Park connects neighborhoods and brings people together. He says he received a letter from the city saying it wants to act a bylaw that protects the park's ecologically sensitive area so it can run a road through it. So this is uh, something we're very upset with as well because if they can do this to one park, they can do this to many parks. And then the road just continues on from there. It's going through people's homes and they just continue to, uh, to disrupt neighborhoods. Pettigrew says thousands of people across Metro Vancouver have signed a petition saying the park should be protected. He says he'll be challenging the city to keep the bylaw in place in City Hall tomorrow. Meanwhile, Surrey City Councillor Mike Starchuk says the concept for the road is still in the works. In an email, Starchuk says the current bylaw that's up for debate is old and that while the proposed road would take up land, the city has bought up property close to Hawthorne Park that's larger and would bring in more trees. 
And in other news, the mayor of New Westminster apparently isn't afraid to go to the mat for his city. Jonathan Cote made an unexpected appearance at a guest, as a guest referee at a professional wrestling match, which was part of the city's Uptown Live Festival this weekend. Cote says he was invited by New West-based wrestler Mr. India to participate in the Royal City Takedown, and he couldn't say no. It was pretty exciting. Uh, you know, the opponent, uh, Mr. Aziz, had been trashing the city of New Westminster all week long. Uh, so it was redemption time, and it was uh, pretty good to jump into the ring, uh, put on the referee shirt. And uh, at that time, uh, Mr. Aziz was about to hit Mr. India over the head with a chair. So I got to grab the chair out of his hand and uh, really set things right in the ring. Cote says he's game for any reasonable request to help New West community groups. A highlight for him was seeing the excitement on children's faces from inside the ring. He also adds it might not be his last match. There's talk of a rematch in October. News time is 8.04. Now the latest AM730 traffic. Looking pretty good on all the major routes, but there's still road work to watch out for. In Langley, overpass construction on Highway 1 eastbound at 208. That's in the HOV lane. That's 24-7 up until the end of the year. In Vancouver, Southwest Marine is closed between Granville and Camosa, and that goes up until September, and truck traffic's being detoured to 41st Avenue. For the most up-to-date traffic information, go to AM730, all traffic all the time. I'm Chantel Chant. Now the sports on News Talk 980 CKNW and Major League Baseball. The Cleveland Indians blew out the Toronto Blue Jays 8-1, to while the Yankees took out the Seattle Mariners 6-4. to And in the Northwest League, the Vancouver Canadians blew out the Salem-Kaiser Volcanoes 8-3. to And in Major League Soccer, the Portland Timbers doubled the Vancouver Whitecaps 2-1. to Now the Global Sky Tracker weather, partly cloudy tonight, a little windy as well. Lows down to 17 degrees and sunny tomorrow morning. Highs between 24 and 28. A few clouds tomorrow evening. Uh, lows down to 16 degrees. In Whistler, it's 21 degrees and clear and outside CKNW at Pacific Center it's currently 18 degrees. CKNW News Times coming up on 806. I'm John Hall. I spoke to an old boyfriend today on Facebook and he had one question for me which I'm going to share with you tonight on the Sunday Night Sex Show on News Talk 980. CKNW, the show where we educate everyone about sexual health, how it relates to overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. This show is more than a sex show, of course. I am just trying to seduce you to listen to information about health, love, relationships, and your body. Good evening. I am Maureen McGrath, a registered nurse in the field of sexual health author of the book sex and health why one can't come without the other researcher blogger clinician ted speaker and your resource to help start that conversation answer your questions and help you discover new and exciting things about sex love your body and your health i make no innuendos no judgments and certainly no apologies just fearless straight up talk about sex love your body and health and everything related to it let's hope for you it will be illuminating, educational, get you thinking outside of the box and have a little fun. So please stay with me. Of course, there's an aspect of sexual health that is dark and dreadful, and that is sexual abuse, any unwanted sexual advances, pedophilia and rape. And I'm going to add to that abuse, any type of abuse in a relationship. Of course, for those of you who have been sexually abused, assaulted, I experience this kind of violence. You are never far from my heart, and I wish you all the best on your healing journey. I keep you in my thoughts and prayers, and I'm always saddened to hear of any situation such as this because it is a violent act, and it is never your fault. It is always the person who is uh, in doing this to you in whatever way, and it is that person that needs the significant help. 
So just a reminder, please put the kitties to bed. Listener discretion is advised. We are going to be talking about some sensitive subjects tonight. Good evening, Matt. How are you? Yeah, I'm fantastic. Yourself? Oh, good. What a glorious day today, huh? Yeah, it looks really nice over your shoulder there. It was just fantastic. Did you get Did you get outside at all? You've been working all day. No, I've been in this chair, but <laughs> I've got the next couple of days off. So Sitting in a chair, you know that's the equivalent of smoking these days, right? The health risks are big, and they do recommend that you get up and walk every hour for about 10 minutes. Hopefully you've been... Oh, uh, I, sometimes, I do stretches here sometimes, actually. Oh, well done. There you go, Matt. All right. We've got lots happening on the program tonight. Uh, yes, you know, Facebook infidelity is a big issue, and many people are at risk for it, and they may not realize that. I, I perhaps put myself at risk today speaking to an old boyfriend. <laughs> Um, one of my first boyfriends. I was trying to think, was he my first boyfriend? I think he was. <laughs> Should Billy call in? Just say, <laughs> don't answer. Anyway, but if you want to call me, 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on yourself. It's always nice to uh, connect with old friends and, and former lovers as well. <laughs> in a way, well, maybe that's a bit of a stretch. I was 13 years old or something. <laughs> Anyhow, um, you know what they say. Uh, anyway, I'll tell you what his question was later, but I think the theme song is uh, The Catholic Girls Start Not Much Too Late. <laughs> is that Billy Joel? The Catholic Girls Start Much Too Late. You don't I know don't, that song? I don't know that one, no, sorry. Oh, the sooner or later it comes down to fate, I might as well be the one. I do love that song. Anyway, maybe you can try and find it. <laughs> Matt? Um, okay, so we're going to be talking about Facebook infidelity. Uh, tonight, which is um, a very interesting subject, and people can think it won't happen to them. Also, are we hungry for a touch in this world in which we live, in which we uh, expect instant gratification? We're rushing around. We've got plugs in our ears half the time. We're walking down the street with the plugs in the ears and uh, not listening to anybody. Nobody can really talk to you. Uh, you're not listening anyway, so you're listening to something else. I mean, I see people texting. They have the earbuds in their ears, and it's just like we're losing that touch, that connection, that relationship. You ever try to talk to somebody you don't realize that they have the plugs in, and you're just like, uh, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. I had I had an ex-girlfriend who was horribly obsessed with her phone, and it really crushed the relationship. Well, it can really impact a relationship, and these are addictive. These devices are addictive, and I don't think people realize that. And I see that, you know, uh, this is... This this is something I'm on about lately. I, I spend a lot of time on the road because I work all over. And, uh, you know, I see so many people texting when they're driving. And that can really ruin your relationship, let me tell you. Uh, it can, you know, you can kill somebody, harm somebody, harm yourself. But I followed somebody on a highway for five minutes and he texted the entire time. Anyway, it's it's just so dangerous. But I always think it's addiction because it is you know, it, it gives you a bit of pleasure. I'm not sure what's so important in life that you have to respond um, right away or so quickly. So we're also going to be talking about, uh, of course, I think I talk about this subject every single Sunday night on the program. Um, but there's a new study out about weight gain and even weight uh, even gaining just a little bit of weight might impact your relationship and um, and and how and, and it may impact your chronic disease risk, which is may even be more important because you know that's why it's important not to feed your partner because that can be an issue as well uh, if you have one of the 
two in the, or maybe there's three in the relationship, I don't know. Um, but maybe, uh, if there's one that feeds the other and, you know, you're actually contributing to an increased risk of chronic disease. And that may mean that you are then going to have to take care of this person as this person ages and has diabetes and hypertension and cardiovascular disease and a whole lot of other chronic illnesses, rheumatoid arthritis, et cetera, et cetera. And that's just not going to make those golden years all that shiny, you know? So think about that. It's really important, but I'll be reviewing that uh, also. And um, I've got uh, why, you know, I, I actually meant to talk about this a couple of weeks ago and never got to it. Why you shouldn't send naked pictures to anybody. Maybe the children should be listening now. <laughs> anyway, it's never a good idea. I don't care how much you trust or love somebody. Things can go awry. So um, don't just don't do that. That's my advice, but I'm going to tell you why a little bit later on in the program. And, and sticking with that infidelity theme, which I seem to talk about quite a bit as well, because everybody thinks it doesn't happen. <laughs> That's why I think I talk about it, because it does. But guess what? People over the age of 55, frisky little things, are more likely than younger people to have extramarital affairs. Can you believe that? I can. Can you believe it, Matt? Uh, maybe, yeah. I can, because in my clinical practice, I hear... Patients will tell me why they've had an extramarital affair, you know, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, and or they may have had one. And it's kind of, you know, it's a little bit about, eh, you know, it's just sex, right? And and they just, you know, nobody was hurt and, and they just needed to explore something or find something out for themselves. And so, you know, lots of sort of matter-of-fact, blasé, nonplussed reasons for having extramarital affairs that necessarily didn't change lives. So I think a lot of people do get to a certain age and they say, is this it? You know, especially if they've lived a dull and boring life. <laughs> Anyway, I don't know. Is that you, Matt? That's not us, is it? No way. (laughs) We are having fun here, at least every Sunday night, live from uh, the gorgeous downtown studios here of CKNW. I'm also going to be talking about, I'm going to give you the 10 top sex questions that I get. I'm going to answer those for you tonight as well. And of course, I have your emails, which I love. So if you want to email me, you can email me at sextalk at cknw.com anytime. And I really appreciate all of your emails. I Not only do I learn from you, Matt learns from you. <laughs> and uh, other listeners learn from you as well, because there's nothing, honestly, there's nothing more valuable than hearing somebody else shares what you've been through. It is so validating. It is so wonderful. In fact, I had two, uh, you know, typically in my clinical practice, and I'm asked this a lot, do you see singles? Do you see couples? What do you see? And I see singles. I see couples. I see whatever. Um, But, you know, I had a very unusual um, uh, two people in my office. These two people were related. They were married to abusive brothers, and they both came in to tell me their story. And that's something I just have very little patience with. And, of course, these women thought it was their fault on some level because they had been berated and emotionally and one had been physically abused. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about that and why that is important um, to tell somebody, to share that story and to know that you are never at fault. Uh, There's conflict in relationships and when somebody loses their cool or somebody, you know, puts a hand to you, it is about them. It is so not about you. Okay. Uh, So I'll be talking a little bit about that a little bit later on in the program. So don't forget, give us a call, 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell. You can email me, sextalk at cknw.com. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Sex Show on Newstalk 980 CKNW. 
Welcome back to the Sunday Night Sex Show on News Talk 980 CKNW. Maureen McGrath here hosting this program for you. It is always my pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for being here with me on this gorgeous Sunday evening in downtown Vancouver. I wanted to start off with an email that I received. I thought we'll start out with a bang. Um, Hopefully you've put the children to bed by this stage of the game. Uh, Dear Maureen, you were such a wonderful help when I wrote terrified that John was ejaculating straight blood. It turned out to be inflammation and polyps after two urologists and three cystoscopies. Later, it seems to have stopped. Thank heavens. Now it's about me. I'm just turning 60, had been on estrogen gel and Vagifem tablets for the last two and a half years. Life was great, but now have suddenly been diagnosed with breast cancer. Only stage one, hallelujah. Surgery in two weeks. But my question is, what will I use instead of the Vagifem tablets? Before going into HRT, I had used Astroglide, and it didn't work very well. I figured if anyone would have <laughs> good advice, it would be you. If anyone would know about the vagina, it would be me. Yes, it would be. Thank you, Lisa. Okay, Lisa. Well, I'm so sorry to hear that you have breast cancer. I'm happy that it's stage one. Um, I likely, obviously, they've taken you off the hormone therapy, the estrogel. The Vagifem tablets, that's a conversation you need to have with your oncologist. Uh, It is because it has estrogen in it, even though it's such a low dose, it's a decision to be made by your doctor. But if you do not feel comfortable taking hormone therapy in your vagina, you may want to try a personal moisturizer which is hormone-free, so there's lots of different ones. There's Repigyne, which is a, a suppository that is inserted into the vagina. There's also Gynotroph, which is a gel that uh, is inserted into the vagina as well. You can also use coconut oil or olive oil sometimes as well. Um, and then the other option today is uh, a new laser therapy. It is called the Mona Lisa Touch, and it is three treatments over about... 12 to 18 weeks, and it can restore your vagina to its pre-menopausal state um, and uh, perhaps all the way back to teenagerhood. So it's um, something that we happen to offer in our office and other physicians offer it as well. Um, So thank you very much for that, and I wish you all the best in your um, journey with uh, breast cancer. And, um, you know, we have a 92% recovery rate, five-year recovery rate here in this province. So um, it sounds, it would appear that things are, your future is looking bright and uh, things will go well. So take care during the treatment. Um, So that, uh, anyway, it's tough to hear those emails. I don't really like when, um, to hear of anybody that's sick, but especially anybody faced with the diagnosis of breast cancer. And of course, vaginal dryness is a big issue uh, for many women, whether they have breast cancer or not. But sometimes the breast cancer treatment itself, the medication, tamoxifen is one of them, will actually um, give you uh, vaginal dryness, and that can lead to painful sex, of course, and low sexual desire. So um, that needs to be treated as well. Uh, so here we go. We're going to be talking about touch. And are we hungry for touch in this world? You know, the world has changed, even in the last, like, three years, five years, ten years. And and especially lately, you see people walking around, really, they're connected to the Internet, but they're disconnected from life. They're disconnected from people. They're, they're pushing baby strollers while they're holding, uh, while they're texting other people. And they're doing this as they cross the street. And I think that's that's a big interruption between you and your baby, the connection you're you're really disconnecting yourself when you put a phone in between yourself and your baby. 
um, where and and touch is so important. In neonatal intensive care units, we actually have volunteers who come in to hold babies, uh, to touch them, to rub their brow, because that has been shown to increase weight gain uh, for babies, and it's been associated with a decreased length of stay uh, in the hospital. So it's really important that we start to touch one another once again. It's become a very uncomfortable act in society. There's this um, idea that you should never hug and kiss your children, never sit sit them on your lap. There's a lot of people that will say that, and that stems from this book on child rearing that was published in 1928, and it was by an influential American psychologist, John B. Watson, and the advice was never kiss or hug your children, never let them sit on your lap. If you must, kiss them once on the forehead when they say goodnight. In a week's time, you will find how easy it is to be perfectly objective with your child, and at the same time, kindly. You will be utterly ashamed at the mawkish, sentimental way you have been handling it. So this was a way to change the way we were raising our children in the 1920s. Um, People were, I gather, uh, being too warm and too cuddly. Now, that's something else today. There's um, still people who will flinch at touching, you know, men may not want to touch other men in a non-bro like way um, because they're they're fearful that they may be deemed homosexual um, or that it's uh, there's such a, a much greater fear of touch in men it's seen as soft and effeminate and many men are you know would prefer to appear macho or at least masculine and touching other men is not associated with being masculine it, it is notable that um, for men who ask women to dance they are more likely to get a yes answer if they touch the woman on her elbow um, or touch the woman on her arm. And, you know, it can be a very gentle way to approach somebody. It, I mean, I, I have to say, like, when, when somebody even I'm working with or, um, you know, touches my shoulder, touches my arm, I, I'm, I'm quite honestly comforted by that. But there are many people who say, you know, my parents weren't, um, they didn't display affection very well. I'm not comfortable with that touch, with that intimacy. But it's very important in relationships, and there are so many benefits of gentle touch. It reduces stress. It protects against future stress. It lifts mood and self-esteem. It strengthens interpersonal bonds and may even improve your cognitive function and improve your immune system so you're less likely to get sick. And so there's also a decrease in that stress hormone, cortisol. There are so many benefits to touch. So, so think about it. Consider, do you want to touch somebody? I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Sex Show on News Talk 980 CKNW. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Sex Show on News Talk 980 CKNW. Maureen McGrath here hosting this program for you. Thank you so much for being here with me this evening. Um, One of the most common mental illnesses in this country is anxiety. Mental health is is created. Mental Mental illness is common, and it can certainly impact your life and impact your relationships. Chris Nyme is an author and a mental health advocate. He's in in Ottawa, and he's an author and a presenter and a teacher, and he's on the line talking to us tonight. Hello, Chris. Hi, how are you? Fine, thank you. How are you? Good, thank you. Chris, thank for, you for the show. Oh, thank you so much for joining me. I, I really appreciate it. No problem. So for over 
10 years, you battled three life-debilitating illnesses, bipolar disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and generalized anxiety disorder. Yes, quite a mix. <laughs> quite, quite, a mix. quite the little cocktail there. And, yeah, no. and you hid this you hid this from people because of the stigma and the shame associated with mental illness. Yes, I mean, all the way back to high school, I struggled with uh, OCD and anxiety. Bipolar came in when I went started university. Um, but I always feared what people thought. Um, I, I was always, you know, someone that carried myself so confidently. And I was a football player and a swimmer and I... You know, my athletics were so big, and I just always found myself saying a very dangerous word, which I tell people about all the time, and it's the word fine. I used fine anywhere I went, and whenever I was struggling, if I said fine, no one asked any more questions. And it was a fear of, you know, what people would think if I was struggling, uh, worried what my parents would, you know, think if I was suffering and struggling and how, how it would affect them. So I used that a lot to, to hide behind um, with the mental illness. But the main thing was the stigma and, and fearing what people thought, uh, you know, as far as maybe looking weaker or less than from other people. And, and you chronicled this in your 2013 poignant memoir, Two Sides to the Story, Living a Lie. A lot of people live the same lie that you were living because of the same reasons. They're going to be, they're afraid that they will be thought of as weak or less than somebody else. Yes. It, you know, it's, it's a terrible thing because illness itself is so strong and intense and it, it took, you know, a good decade of my life away um, trying to, to get my life back on track. And then to have to deal with, you know, worrying about what people think about you and, and just the, the stereotypes and the, the labels and, you know, especially when, I, you know, it was early 2000s when I was diagnosed with bipolar, it was 2001, and mental illness, you know, in the last five, six years has make, made a big step forward. We're still not there. Um, we're making improvements, but back then it just wasn't something you spoke about. It was something that you hid and something that you didn't want anyone to know about because, you know, it would affect your job, it would affect your relationships, it would affect everything that you did. That's right. And were you, did you suffer as a child? Did you have symptoms as a child? Uh, my mental illness goes back to about 13. Um, I was actually a, a competitive swimmer at the age of 13, and I was one of the top swimmers in Canada in the 50-meter freestyle. Um I was definitely headed towards Olympic times and possibly swimming in the Olympics. And I remember telling my dad after about a year and a half of swimming and things were going great. And I said, dad, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I, I think I'd like to try something else. I, I don't know if this is for me, but at that time it, it, I was feeling a lot of anxiety and a lot of worries were going in, in my mind. And I thought, you know, can I do this? Am I able to do this? And anxiety really took over at that early in age. And it just built up through the years. I left baseball. I left football. I was invited to play football at the University of Western Ontario. And my dad had won a Vanier Cup with Queens in 1968. So I had all these aspirations of doing these great things right into university. And sickness continued to build up without me saying anything, and I left those sports. 
And were you performing in those sports? Oh, yeah. In spite of your... So you were doing well, but you felt you weren't doing well enough. Yeah, I was doing well. In, in swimming and football, I definitely had a future in sports. Um, but the biggest thing came with baseball when I was about 15. That's where obsession started to build, and my OCD uh, tr- started to kick in. I had a fear in playing all-star where I feared getting hit by the ball. And I must have went 35, 40 uh, at-bats in a row uh, striking out continually because I feared that the ball was going to hit me. And, and obsessions are unwanted thoughts that you have no control of that enter your head. Would that be a, okay. a, an adequate description? Yeah, I mean, obsessions are the thoughts. So I might obsess about, you know, I'm, I, I look at myself in the mirror and, oh, my muscles aren't big enough. Or, you know, I better pick up that garbage because someone's going to get hurt. So those obsessions go in your head and the compulsion is the actual ritual, the, the, you know, when you actually do the action. And I found that when, when it's so intense, the action just came right after. It just came right after the, the thought. But the way that I overcame that was I had to find a way to prevent myself from doing the compulsion. When I actually prevented myself, the obsession itself or the thought started to lose its power. Okay. I was able to eventually break the pattern between obsessions and and compulsions. And now, was there a history of mental illness in your family, or did you know about it? When we look back um, in my my family, you know, hereditary and the the, uh, line above us, there are a few people that have bipolar, not in my actual stream, um, like my grandparents and my grandparents' parents. We don't see it there but we definitely see it in uncles, aunts, cousins. Um, there's a few with bipolar. We've had a few that have taken their lives, you know, in several years back. Um, so mental illness is definitely in the family. Um, but what I'm trying to do with my journey is to show people that healing does happen. It's a lot of work. It's a full-time job. It takes consistency. It takes medication every day. I've taken my medication now, I'm proud to say this, 17 years, I have not missed one single day since the first day I took medication. And that's very important. You raise a lot of issues here. One is that, uh, the, well, there are two types of bipolar illness, as I understand it, bipolar 1 and bipolar 2, and one is associated with psychosis. I'm not sure which type you had. Yes, I, I struggle with uh, bipolar 1, so... When I was in my mania, which was in 2001, just before I went into my major depression, where I was in my parents' basement for over two months, I just would not leave the basement. I was in the dark, and it was the worst time of my life. But before that, um, in January, February, March of 2001, I was experiencing what is called mania, and mania is the, the high part of uh, bipolar. Uh, A bipolar one disorder, just to be clear, the bipolar one is mood cycling between high and low over time. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. And psychosis is basically when the mind starts to think things that aren't real. It starts to think very irrationally and and, and, and in a a delusional way. So I had uh, delusions of grandeur where I thought that I was about to build businesses that were going to make billions of dollars all around the world. I had binders set out. I had all kinds of things written up, ready to go. Um, my spirituality went through the roof. 
I, I thought that I was chosen. I thought I was a special person, you know, more special than other people that God had a direct link to me. Um, so you I, did have psychosis with yours? Oh, yes. Okay, so you were, were you bipolar too? No, bipolar one. You're bipolar one. Okay. Yeah. With bipolar one, you do have psychosis. Okay. For sure. Um, and so these kind of things were happening. And at the time, it just felt normal for me. I, I felt so rejuvenated, so alive. It was a euphoria that I felt. And that's and that then, hypomania. Is that right? Well, yeah, hypomania. Okay, so first you have normal level. Um, mania is at the top, and in between is hypomania. Mm-hmm. So hypomania is um, it's sort of like a middle range uh, between normal and mania. And hypomania, I experienced many times throughout the years, and it's more like um, I would get more irate, more angry. Uh, it wasn't, as my doctor termed it, it's like a bad mania. It's it's not it's not as joyful and 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 fun as I felt in actual mania, but that joy was very dangerous. Right. And you, and people I gather have rapid pressured sort of uninterruptible and loud speech. Oh yeah. It was amazing. I, I mean, if you had a conversation with me during, during mania, I was just talking a mile a minute. I, I would, and I would talk to anyone. I would go into restaurants and I would sit with my friends for five minutes and then I'd be walking around the whole restaurant meeting every single person. It was just like I had so much joy and I just wanted to share with everyone. I would actually get out of my car at streetlights and dance around the car. Like it just, the energy that you felt was unbelievable. And it's amazing too because I wasn't sleeping at night. Right. I was getting an hour and a half to two hours sleep for four months. And when you realized that you had done all the all of this had happened afterward, did you were you overcome with embarrassment and shame and did that lead to a depressive episode? Well, you know, I started to come down in probably May and June and uh I actually launched my very first book. Uh, a friend and I had co-wrote and we self-published it at the end of June. And I remember coming out of that launch and everyone was excited, and we were celebrating. Uh, we had actually sold a thousand books in one four-hour launch. It was amazing. And I remember being at the celebration, and it just—I wasn't feeling good. I wasn't feeling that same joy that I, I had been experiencing over the months. And so slowly, over the weeks, I just started to drop more and more. And no, when I went into depression, I wasn't thinking, "Oh, did I embarrass myself?" This and that. My depression was hit me so hard mm-hmm. that I couldn't even think when I was in that basement. It was just, uh, I mean, if you talk to my parents, they had to listen to me down there, and I was just in agony. I, I was moaning, I was groaning, I was yelling, I was screaming. I've never, ever experienced anything like that before, and nothing mattered. And I, as I'm, I always said to my dad, I just don't care, I just don't care. It I, must have been very hard for your parents as well. Oh, my family, I wanted to emphasize that my, my sister and my parents were the most incredible supports I could ever have. I, I would either have been dead or I'd be on the streets if it weren't for them. It was, it's unimaginable how much love that people can put on someone, and that's what they did. It was, it and was I just. 
I want to hear. I want to hear all the good stuff as well. How you treated yourself. I'm going to ask you to hang on. We're going to go to break, oh, and I'll ask sure. you, Chris Naimi, to hang on and talk about your mental illness and your recovery from it, and and the great life that you're leading today. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Sex Show on News Talk 980 CKNW. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Sex Show on News Talk 980 CKNW. Chris Naimi is my guest. He is a mental health advocate, mental illness survivor. He's an author, a presenter, a speaker. Chris, thanks for staying on the line with me. Oh, thank you. I just want to tell you, I've received a number of uh, emails uh, during your uh, our little chat before, and uh, I'll just give you the sentiments because there's so much to read. Um, one said, hey, Maureen, love your guest. This guy's an inspiration. Somebody else, Maureen, love your guest. He sounds like a real-life person. Uh, that's what we listeners love to hear. I want to hear more from this guy. <laughs> oh, so that's, that's just in a few minutes there. Um, I'm sure there'll be more coming in. Uh, so you have your life as you knew it uh, prior to your diagnosis. Your life as you knew it was, was gone, basically, uh, after you were diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, bipolar disorder, and obsessive-compulsive disorder. So how you had a great family that supported you and helped you through. Obviously, you must have had something within yourself that, uh, you know, that you've been so successful and uh, have, have managed to live with this disorder and live quite successfully. So um, what, what was your treatment? What was the diagnosis? And, or when, how were you diagnosed? And what was the treatment? Well, in 2001, just as I entered my parents' basement, I was diagnosed with the bipolar um, bipolar disorder. And uh, late 2001, I, I had finally emerged from the basement. My doctor had to prescribe light. It was that bad. So he's like, you know, you're going to go upstairs for five minutes, and then you're going to come back down. And we slowly did that. That Having a, a psychiatrist that I could trust that supported me completely was a big step forward. I've been with the same doctor now for 17 years since I started my medication. And he was a huge reason um, that I improved. He challenged me. He pushed me to improve. He pushed me to, you know, take set goals. Um, And when the OCD and the generalized anxiety started to mix with the bipolar, things got pretty chaotic. It was, you know, each, each one attacked the other one. And, you know, at times it left my apartment that I was staying in, you know, holes in the walls, broken things, you know, uh, yelling, swearing, but, and, and I always say that, like, that my book, my two sides of the story, I had to put swearing in it. I had to put all these things in it because that's what happened. That's the actual story. If I doll it up and I take that stuff out, I don't show people the reality of what sickness is. But Absolutely. I've just had another email from somebody who says, I think I have this. Anyway, oh. go on. You're, you're inspiring them as you speak. What, what medication were you put on, Chris? Okay, so I went on... I'm having so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> Most people do on the sex show. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was put on lithium. Uh, lithium was the very first drug that I went on, which is a, a mood stabilizer, so it, it balances the chemicals for my bipolar. Um, I then went on uh, lamotrigine and clomipramine, which are more for my... OCD and anxiety. Uh, in 2005, um, I, you know, hit a uh, you know, pretty tough time with those things coming together. And I remember sitting with my dad on Boxing Day 2005, and 
he's, we both looked at each other and my dad said, have you ever thought of writing your story? Because this is, this is quite a story. Like, look what you've been through. And so we brainstormed that day for about an hour and I just put it aside. But 2006, I had an incident in my apartment where I was yelling, screaming on the phone, dad, I want to end things. And all of a sudden there was a knock at the door and I look through the peephole and there's two police officers and I'm like, Oh no. I open the door. I'm in my boxer shorts only. Like you can imagine. <laughs> After all this stuff, I'm trying to hide, you know, right. from teachers that I'm supply teaching. I'm doing all this stuff and I'm trying to hide all this. Oh. Police officers walk in. I'm sitting on my couch in my boxers and I'm ready to go out in handcuffs. They have the ambulance stretcher out there. And these officers, all they did was start to talk to me and ask me, you know, what was wrong? What's this? What's that? And instead of getting the handcuffs on my arms, the guy goes in my bedroom, takes out a T-shirt, comes back around and says, here. He puts it on my shoulders. He said, how's that? I said, oh, thank you very much. And he said, it's going to be okay. And that pivotal moment when mm -hmm. those officers left and my dad came over and he took me to the emergency and we met my doctor. I said, that day, I am going to start writing that book because I have a story that I need to share, and I need to show that people are compassionate, people do accept you, and stigma is going to stop. And I vowed that day to start writing that story, and it took me five years. It was a five-year process because I was still going through things, but as I wrote, it was a pushing force forward. It just it just ignited me. It made me realize that I had a reason for living on. I, I Suffering was not a waste. I was going to share a story, and I was going to show people that healing can happen and that we need to change the way we think about mental illness. And that's what I did over five years. And it motivated me. It gave me purpose in my life, and that was the driving force alongside my medication, my doctor, my parents. I built my faith, you know, a, a balanced faith, one that wasn't fanatical. And you've I, done you've done just a beautiful job, and it's a beautiful story and a poignant memoir. I suggest you read it. Two sides to the story: living a lie. Uh, Chris, it's been an absolute delight to have you on the program. Thank you so much. And I look forward to having you back because I think we need to continue this conversation. And I think, obviously, from the emails tonight, um, people were texting me uh, or emailing me asking me how to spell your last name. It's, name. it's Chris, C-H-R-I-S-N-I-H-M-E-Y. That's Chris Nime.com. Thank you, Chris, so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you this evening. Thank you. It has been a pleasure here as well. All right. Take care. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye now. Vancouver's News, Vancouver's Talk. This is News Talk 980 CKNW.